uh, to us, and we are thankful to that. Now, that being said, I have 24 minutes, right? I made you all a promise, and I am not. Now, my phone might be going dead, so the promise might just have gotten easier uh, to deal with because I'm going to be up here without my training wheels. Um, see what happens here. Hang on. Are my notes on good? Yeah, there we go. I'm just going to have to cheat sheet. I love you all. You're going to have to bear with me. This morning, we continue on in our story. The Lord of the Sabbath will be in Matthew chapter 11 to start with. We've been watching the story of Jesus uh, in the last couple weeks. We had the opportunity um, two weeks ago. I missed last week uh, for work, but uh, we had the opportunity two weeks ago uh, to start talking a little bit about somebody that Jesus lifted high to in John the Baptist. So where have we been? Well, we've talked about the idea that Jesus brings, we see those in the gospel as he comes, but he also brings a sword. And this has been hard for so many people to understand, and it's why I will beat this drum until the day I die. It's why you will hear it from me on repeat until the day uh, I am no longer here, because this is vitally important. Jesus also brings the sword of truth. He brings all of these good and wonderful things but, but, as Lord, as Creator, as Savior, He divides families, cultures, and peoples. And he, that division is based off of what? The division is based off of what is true and what is false. What is true and what is opinion. And Jesus has made very, very clear in the Gospels for those that read them uh, from start to finish. Uh, he is a man that is more of a peacemaker than a peacekeeper. He makes peace between man and God. He makes peace, uh, but you have to have conflict before you can make peace. And so he brings conflict as well. He brings the sword. And so he tells the disciples that uh, in Matthew chapter 10. Last week, we talked about the idea of something to celebrate, or two weeks ago, with John the Baptist. As we started the new year, I just wanted to bring in this idea that all this doom and gloom and all the things that we're dealing with, there are things to celebrate. Jesus brings that up in Matthew 11 when he talks about John the Baptist. He is a great man, he has a good name, but there is also a glorious God. And so you and I can strive to be people like John the Baptist, someone with a testimony that is what? That is passion and truth, fire and light. Too much passion, things get uh, crazy. They're emotionally driven. They're not steady enough. Too much truth, we can't have too much truth, but if you're relying solely on truth, then it gets dry. It's very rigid. A good relationship in this world has both. Passion and truth, fire and light, commitment and passion. These are the things that John the Baptist is known for. And then we finally, uh, we contrasted that with the idea of Solomon, right? And John, Jesus would look at the crowd and say, John the Baptist, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you dealt with him, you entertained him, you enjoyed him for a little while. See, friends, if you and I are going to live this Christian life, there will be people in the world that uh, will entertain you or enjoy you or at least marvel at you for a little while. But eventually you and I find out they are not interested in the truth. They are not interested in the light. They are not interested in the salt that God is bringing through us. And so Jesus looks at the crowd and he tells them that about John the Baptist. The crowd would later do the same thing to Jesus. 
And then the idea was, as the followers, as the book of Acts is written, the idea would be that that same testimony is passed down to Jesus' followers as well. Our salt and our light is what God uses to build the kingdom, but not everybody is going to come into that kingdom, and many of them are going to despise us because of that. That being said, you and I do not get the right to deviate from the message so that we can entertain those or be close to those that want nothing to do with your Lord. And that is a message that a lot of people will not bring in this day and age. Why? Because it comes with it. There's going to be an element of persecution, of suffering that's going to come our way. And it will be small in comparison to the glory that God will pour out on those that maintain their faithfulness. As we finish this morning, I wanted to start in chapter 11. We're going to end in chapter 12. But I wanted to bring in this first passage. Why? Because the connection uh, is very strong here. I don't, uh, don't know why this doesn't start chapter 12. It seems to me like it would have fit, fit very, very uh, well. Chapter 11, verse 25 says this. And the time, uh, in that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The idea this morning come up in Sunday school was we have a simple faith. We're simple with the world. We're simple with evil. This, this idea is you and I are tender. We are um, in the context of children. When you look at the way they interact uh, with good parents, you see pieces of who you and I are to be with God in this world. Then the command is also to be shrewd. But you and I are to be as little children. You've revealed them to little children, revealed them to the humble, to the needy. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Verses 25 and 26, as children we are fed, loved, protected, and provided for. And all the Christian life is one that's lived by grace. You were saved by grace, and you live your life by grace. By the hand of the Father, by the will of the Father, your life goes on, your strength is there, your joy is there, your peace is there. Those things are handed out, doled out gracefully. And you and I, when we're really honest about ourselves, we are very thankful they do not depend on us. Because how often do we even finish the day in the manner we know we are to finish it. How often do we start the morning right, and then by the time you get in the car and the first person cuts you off in traffic, your mind is already skewed to the frustrations of the day. Or you roll into that place at work, and there are so many people there that are just nagging, they're nasty, they're going to try to drag you down, and you and I deviate. Listen, these don't change the promises of God for your life and for mine. They don't change how we bear fruit and what kind of fruit we bear. Why? Because you were saved by grace, and you and I live by grace. When all, uh, when all is right, children don't earn love, it's given. So you have to be very careful how you take these examples in Scripture and apply them modern day. Why? Because our culture has gone so far from the ideal that some people can't understand this concept. It's very bad in the idea of God being a heavenly father if you're saying that to someone whose father was 
nasty, not there, left them aloof, always critical. And you say, well, God is your heavenly father. Well, we have skewed what that looks like because the context we're giving it, they don't understand what a good father looks like. So you can't look at them and say, well, God is your heavenly father and have it land like it does when somebody had a good earthly father. And that person says, oh, I understand. I remember what that was like to be three, four, and five years old, look up at your dad and think there wasn't anything he could do to know that when something happened, he was going to have your back, he was going to fix the problem. I remember that. That's the idea. In this one, when everything is right in the world, children don't earn love, it's given. That's how God doles it out on you and I. We don't earn it. It's a gift from a father to a child. The will of God turns the world's structure on its head. It's not the strong, it's not the mighty, it's not the intelligent that inherit the kingdom of God. It is the lowly, the meek, and the humble. So what happens with this life of grace is there's no room for you and I to be prideful. It's why the analogy is so good that it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's the idea of the gospel. Why? Because we're all beggars. We're all broken, sinful, and needy. And so this life that is uh, given in grace, this life that is lived in grace, you and I never have an ounce of pride in what's going on in our heart. When the Lord works within you, it is a sign of His grace and His love poured out on you. And then you and I are required to try to help others see it too. It's why when we build a false idea of who we are or we set these ideas that our life is perfect or we are perfect, it's why the idea that we never apologize in front of people that we've wronged, whether it's public or private, these things are detrimental to the gospel because eventually you and I look like it's within us. It is just us. Instead of being real with people and look at them, this is what God is doing in my life. I wronged you. I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. My attitude was poor. You do those things publicly, and now you're giving glory to God as opposed to just hoarding it all for yourself. When they look at the Christian life and they see an example that they don't think they'll ever reach, that's not what they should see when they see us. They should look at us, and when they get to know us, they should understand there is grace there. And the Lord does that. This individual has not always been this way. They were a mess too. They were this, they were that, but for the grace of God. Verse 27, Jesus tells them, knowing God is a gift. Even singing the praise and worship this morning, you and I need to understand, don't ever take that access for granted. And I love it when things come up in Sunday school when they're not planned. But the reverence aspect of who we are as Christians, who God is as God, the reverence aspect come up in Sunday school this morning. And I love that reminder. You and I are to fear Him with a holy awe. He is glorious and good, strong and mighty. And when we walk into his presence, you and I are doing so by the grace of Jesus Christ. The merit of Christ brings us there. So here's the tie-in for chapter 12 when we start to read through it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The command is for you and I to come for rest. What is the one thing that any unsaved person is looking for ultimately? Rest. Their soul is in turmoil. They're broken. They're needy. They're helpless. 
They're exhausted. They're frustrated. And so Jesus calls out to a crowd that works probably physically a little different than than you and I do in our culture. So maybe it landed different for those that were out in the heat of the day constantly trying to do this, trying to do that. It was actually so hot that they would kind of quit in the middle of day, right? Get started early, quit in the middle, get uh, back going late just to deal with what was going on in their life. And he looks at them and he says, come to me for rest. He is talking to an exhausted crowd. Come to me. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. You see, when you and I come to Christ, this call from Him is not just, um, it's a package deal. When you and I come into the life of Christ, when we come into the life of the Christian, we take what? We take His yoke, His pattern of life, His demeanor in life, and because of those things, we have His heart and we find rest. Jesus did a lot of ministry. He did a lot of work. He was constantly behind enemy lines. And yet he was able to do so with the courage and the joy and the peace that the Holy Spirit Spirit can provide to you and I too. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. That is a comparison to the power that's within you and I. You see, life is hard. It's hard for the saved and it's hard for the unsaved. And you say, well, that's not true. Okay, well, when's the last time you picked up the phone and somebody on the other end was telling you about a loved one that had died or was going to? When's the last time you picked up the phone or walked into a place where a child was sick and you had to deal with a parent? You see, the idea that Jesus' yoke is easy is an idea of the power underneath, not a direct lift of what's there. And I thought about using a kid as an example here, right? Like, I can carry my toddler around no problem. Right? He weighs a certain amount. But if I give him to a child and tell them to carry him around, what's going to happen? We're all going to be crying. There's going to be a volume uptick in what happens when they trip, fall, put him down, drop him, get done. The difference is not the weight of the child. The difference is the power behind. So when you and I come into a Christian life, it's not that this life changes. It's not all hunky-dory. It's not all great. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and just everything's going to be put right. And those that pitch it that way are lying. They are deceptive. They are manipulating for an outcome. They want either a big church or a big purse. That's not how this works. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning and bills are going to be due and doctor's appointments have to be met and people are going to be hurt. So what changes? The strength within you. You upgraded your engine. Tow package is much better. There is a strength there that comes about. And Jesus, in the call, I just want you to see the call is to come and to rest. If I could give away the rest of the sermon, I would just look at you and say, if all these people in our culture are Christian and all of the stuff we have is so nice and so wonderful, why are we lacking rest? It's what my heart screams for so many. Jesus' call to the world is to come to me when you're heavy, when you're broken, when you're beat up, and I will give you rest. But it takes his yoke, his pattern, his demeanor, who he is, all of who he is, Lord and Savior, and in him we find rest. Look at Matthew chapter 12 with me. Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The question you need to ask is, Who said so? 
I'll read you the Sabbath passage in a minute in Exodus. The question you and I need to ask when these confrontations from Jesus happen is, Who said so? That is very important. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did? Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Ooh, that's big. And if you had known means I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. See, they're hearkening back to the Ten Commandments. You've broken the law on the Sabbath. You've broken what is right to do on the Sabbath. Your your disciples are breaking it. How can you be a teacher of the law and the people closest to you are breaking the law? The problem is, after so many layers and so many years of human interaction and power struggle, the law that God had given, which is about three verses about the Sabbath, they had made into dozens and dozens and dozens of rules. And so they're missing the purpose of the law. Do you understand that the law is a blessing? You understand the law is not a curse? You understand that when God tells us to worship him, to honor him, not to make graven images, uh, not to, not to uh, take his name in vain, when God tells us to honor the Sabbath, when God tells us to honor our parents, when he tells us not to lie, not to lust, not to covet, when he tells us these things, they're not curses. They're blessings. When our life rides under them and when cultures ride under them, people are blessed, not cursed. The disciples had taken, or the the Pharisees had taken those things, and they had made them curses. So they interact with Jesus in the first seven verses. Good rules and gaudy rulers. They're going to stand up and talk about like shimmering, shiny stuff. They're going to look the part, and they're going to say the things that they think are correct or the things that they've made to be correct. And they're going to take these good rules, and they're going to harm them. They're going to pervert them in order to, to get power and to keep it. Jesus points out the absurdity of their qualifications. There's absolutely nothing wrong in the middle of an argument or a debate pointing out absurdities. Like this is crazy and that is crazy. Jesus is going to do it twice in this passage. The first time he looks at him, he says, have you all, you love David. Have you not read what they did? You love the priests and you honor them. Have you not read what they do on a weekly basis? They dishonor the Sabbath. They profane it. Why? By eating of the offering, by the things that they do, by the way that they work. So Jesus points out the insanity and the absurdity of how they're trying to bring him to account. In verse 6, he contrasts what's going on between the normal and the extraordinary. Jesus looks at him and says, something that is greater than the temple is here right now. And he goes on to say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, when you read through the Gospels, so many people want to claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. They're not reading them properly in the context. When he looks at them and says, for the Son of Man, it's capitalized in my Bible. I'm sure it's capitalized in your. That is a picture of the book of Daniel. The Son of Man sitting there as God on the throne. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What's going to happen now? He's going to prove it. What's he going to do? He is going to 
prove it. Mercy and miracles. Look at verse 9. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, and they asked him. Look at the trap. The leaders asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Connect that last verse that Jesus just said to them. If you knew what it meant that I want mercy and not a sacrifice, if you knew that understanding, this trap and this next question would not even be had. The religious people should have been looking at Jesus and saying, heal this man. He's been broke long enough. We desire mercy on his life. Pour out your mercy. You can do it. You've done it over and over and over. We've seen it. We've heard about it. Instead of wanting to dispute it, they could have looked at him and said, heal the man, Jesus. Instead, they come to him and say, is it lawful to heal him? They're going to trap him. They're going to try to trap Jesus. So he preaches these things in the passage before, and then he proves them in the one coming. Verses 9 and 10. And the man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? So that they might accuse him. In the context of his last comment, Jesus proceeds to show his call, I'm going to give you rest. Come to me. I'm going to give you rest. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of peace. He proceeds to prove that, and then he goes on to prove when he says he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's going to prove it. Why? He's going to do a miracle right in front of them. When if God is real and his law says you shouldn't be able to do these things on the Sabbath, you would think God would stop him, curse him, or kill him. What happens? Instead, Jesus steps in and he says them, Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? He points out the absurdity again. You're fools and hypocrites. Your hearts are wicked. I desire mercy, not a sacrifice. You would show more mercy on a sheep, especially if it was yours, than you would on a man that's had a hand withered forever. There are pictures of Jonah in this passage. These people were residing under Jonah's curse. Remember, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, not because he was worried or fearful, but because he didn't want those people to experience the grace and the mercy of God. If he went and he preached and they repented, God would not pour out his judgment. You see the Pharisees doing the same thing here. He's going to affirm his call, he's going to affirm his title, and he's going to affirm, he's going to confirm what is on their hearts. Why is the man even there? He ends up being bait from the Pharisees, but he ends up being an example from the Lord. Look at verse uh, 11 and 12. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on Sabbath, will not take a hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. And you would think there would be glory and praise and honor. What happens instead, verse 14, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Is it lawful to do good? What kind of question is that? How would religious leaders make that comment? Is it lawful to do good? That's what the law is all about, doing good between you and the Lord, between you and your fellow mankind. Verse 13, the Lord of rest, Jehovah Shalom, is also the Lord of healing, Jehovah Rapha, and he shows it in one passage. Come to me, I will give you rest. Walks right into chapter 12, talking about the Sabbath, and then he proves who he is on the Sabbath in front of all to see. 
Jesus is dodging traps and gathering treasures. You see, he is the God of rest. And he bids us to come and to rest. And actually, you know what happens is he demands that we come and rest. And so my question to you is, why are we so frantic? Why are we so frazzled in life? Why, as Christians, are we no less uh, spinning at such a high rate of speed? Why are we uh, no less worried about what's going on? Why are we so caught up in the day-to-day that we can't stop and get our breath? If Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, why are we so frazzled? Let me ask you this one. Why do you and I crave a vacation and then despise the other 50 weeks a year? I don't know how much vacation time you get. Some get more, some get less. But, man, we sure do look forward to that week. What if I told you that meant more about the idea that we were doing it wrong than it meant about how good a vacation should be? What if I told you that our lives are spinning so fast and so hot that unless we, we don't hit the brake, we don't let off the gas, we shove it in park? And that's the only way we can get any rest. What if I told you those things were, were an indictment on how we are living it wrong? Why? Because from Old Testament to New Testament, God's people are people of rest. Rest shows faith. So why do we crave uh, a vacation so desperately? And why do we despise the other 50 weeks of the year? You wake up and go in on Monday morning and you're just miserable. What is going on in our lives? What is missing? Most of us are content with letting up on the gas. What if God wanted to put it in park? There's a pattern of love and blessing that we need to understand. The Lord of the Sabbath practiced it in Genesis. Work six, off one. God didn't need the rest. He did it as a pattern for us. He mandates it in Exodus. Uh, uh, Commandments number one, we worship only him. Commandment number two, we make no images uh, like him. Commandment number three, we honor his name. We don't say it in vain. And commandment number four, this is amazing to me, it is a command to rest. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's it. What's that look like? Why is it there? Because the people needed it. The The first three are like between me and God. And I was thinking about this last night. The fourth one is like me against me. Me against me. Am I going to honor the Sabbath? Am I going to honor God with the rest that he is mandating that I put? Why? Because it's a blessing, not a curse. And then the next six are me and other people. Me and my parents. Me and all those that I live with. But number four, there's some weird transition here that gets my mind wondering what all the Lord had for us in that idea. It's God uh, his image, right? he's going to be our God. It is uh, no images so that we don't worship what is not him. And then it's don't profane his name, don't say his name in vain. And then it's honor the Sabbath. And that fourth one is a struggle between me and me. Do I believe the idea that God can do more with my six days than I can with seven? Do I believe the idea that he's going to provide for me tomorrow even if I take the day off? Sabbath rest is a sign of faith. Jesus crushes the insanity of its abuses, but he deepens its meaning and its importance. You see, you and I need rest. We need quiet. We need shutdown. Listen, friends, if Jesus needed to go off by himself and recharge, you think you and I don't need that? We're running ragged. And the Lord of rest would beg us to do something different. As they come this morning to play, Exodus chapter 20 reads this way. 
So here it is. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On, uh, on it shall not do, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your, the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Why are you and I so frantic? Because we're not hitting the brakes. We're running at a crazy uh, amount of speed. We're, we're ingesting information at a crazy amount of speed. Too much for our souls to even take in. And we cannot figure out why. If it's not energy drinks, it's antidepressants. We cannot figure out why. It's just everywhere in our culture. Part of it is this rat race is killing us. You and I weren't made to run that way. Jesus didn't do it. You don't have to either. We need to learn to rest. We need to learn to take him serious. What if we saw the rest day, the Sabbath day, as a blessing? What if it was actually necessary instead of just something that could you could take it or leave it? And I'm not necessarily going to argue that it needs to be on Saturday or Sunday, but somewhere in your pattern of living, there needs to be days where things are turned off, things are shut down, and you are with family, having good food, hanging out, enjoying each other's company, and just relaxing. You need to be in a safe place with loving people. Some of you work on Sunday. I work on Sundays. Some of you work on Saturdays. I work on Saturdays. But it has to be a pattern there where you and I are handing the Lord something to work, some quiet time to be a part of. What if we saw Genesis and Jesus in the New Testament as a pattern to emulate instead of just a story to read? What if we remembered that God does more with six days than we can do with seven? He'll do the same thing with your money. What if one day was filled with quiet, good food, and sweet company? What if, as an act of faith, we took God at his word? As you stand this morning and they get ready to play, I'm begging you to do business with yourself. Between you and the Holy Spirit, you and the Lord, listen, your rest is important to God. Why? Because your body needs it, your soul needs it, And when we're doing it properly together, other people around you need it too. We can't always be in sixth gear. Sometimes you got to downshift and sometimes you just got to put it in park. You just got to wait, slow down, and enjoy what the Lord has for you. Jesus said, come and I'll give you rest. If you don't have that today, it's not him that's wrong. Something's going on in your life. Something's going on in mine. And we need to fix that. If you need something, you come.